Uh, it's good to be here again this morning. It's always a wonderful privilege to be here in, uh, with the gathering of the saints and preaching the word. I know sometimes uh, ministers, including myself, will talk about the weight of the ministry, but honestly, um, it's also a very great privilege to stand here and to be able to preach, and I enjoy preaching. I love it. Um, I used to feel guilty about that. I don't anymore. I love to preach. And so I ask you this morning if you would open up your copy of God's glorious word to Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 19. And right now we are journeying through a series that's a walk through the life of Jesus Christ in a verse-by-verse fashion. We're walking verse-by-verse through the life of Jesus, but we're doing so using all four of the Gospels So we are harmonizing the Gospels as we go along. And um, our desire is to see Christ more fully and worship him more rightly. Now as you're finding the passage we're looking at today, I'm going to, for the sake of an illustration this morning, I'm going to, to call out a date, a famous date, and you tell me what happened on that date. Okay? So here we go. Here's the first one. July 4th, 1776. What? Come on. All right. Yeah, and you weren't even homeschooled. Good job. All right. Declaration of Independence. All right. October, it's a little bit harder. October 24th, 1929. Okay, the, the stock market crash that was the beginning of the Great Depression. All right. How about this one? November 9th. 1989, November 9th, 1989. What? No space shuttle? No, not the reunion of the new kids on the block or anything like that, no. It, the fall of something, the Berlin Wall, okay? The, the Berlin Wall actually began to fall on that date, and it was over a period of time that it fell. Now, the common denominator in all these different dates is that they are turning points in history where life before that date was different than life after it. So, so think about people in America in the 1770s. Life after July 4th, 1776 was radically different than life before that. Or in the, during the Great Depression. Life in the 20s, the roaring 20s, was greatly different than life in the 30s. And, of course, people in, in Berlin and in Germany and really in the world in general, life was different after that fall of the wall in 1989. Here's a couple of other ones. October 31st, 1517. What? Okay, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and the world was never the same after that. Uh, December 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor. Wow, that one was easy. Uh, this one's hard. May 27th, 1995. That was just for me. That's when I got married. Okay, my life wasn't the same. It was radically different and radically better after that date. But we all have hinge moments in our lives. Dates that are hinge moments. And there's hinge moments in, in the history of the world. And as we look at this text today, what we're going to see is the, the inbreaking of a hinge moment. The world is not the same once Jesus comes on the scene, but there's a little tension here as 
people like John the Baptist and others try to understand what all the implications are of Jesus coming on the scene. And what does it mean that, that he is announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand? What does that mean? And so there's this massive hinge moment that's happening in the text we're looking at today. Where life after the event has to be seen in a different way than life before the event. And of course the one that sticks out in all of our minds as far as events that have happened in most of our lifetimes here is 9-11, right? Life was never the same after 9 Still not. I mean, we go back and think of a pre-9-11 world that we lived in. And it's radically different than the world we live in today. So in today's text, it's not dealing with a moment in time or a specific date per se, but a life. The life of our Lord Jesus Christ. The moment Jesus arrives on the scene, everything begins to change. This is the hinge moment of all of history. All of previous history had been building towards it, and all of history since looks back at it. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, there was an overlap of eras. An old era marked by an old covenant was passing away, and a new era marked by a new covenant was dawning. So the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, is changing everything. But not everyone understood the full implications of just how radically things were changing. So like we saw last week, and last week we looked at Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. We saw an incident where John the Baptist sent two of his disciples to Jesus, asking if Jesus was really the one that they had been waiting for, or if they should look for another one. In other words, John was doubting Jesus' role as Messiah. The problem was that John had certain expectations, misplaced expectations, that kept him from seeing the Messianic mission. He was still looking through an old era lens, and he couldn't see what was happening in the new era. And so that was the text we looked at last week. Poor John didn't fully grasp the true nature of the world tilting shift that was happening through Jesus' ministry. And today's text picks up right where that one left off, where John the Baptist, um, where, the, where John's disciples are going back to him with, with the message that Jesus is giving them. Now, I've decided to jump over to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 11 instead of staying in Luke's version of the story. They're pretty much identical. They're, they're parallel. And they're pretty much identical, except that, that Matthew gives us a little bit more data here um, that actually he gives us some lines here that are actually more difficult to interpret. But I think we're up for the challenge, so I said, let's do it. Let's jump over to Matthew and look at Matthew's uh, version of the exact same event. So right now, if you would, please stand as we get ready to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 19. So this passage begins with John's disciples leaving. So they are leaving, going back to John after Jesus has helped correct John's understanding. And so now we read in verse 7 of Matthew 11 these words. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we know that all of your word points to Jesus, as we sang a minute ago, and we want to see the glory of Jesus in this text and the glory of what Jesus is doing by heralding the arrival of the kingdom and what it means to us. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would turn our hearts toward you. Uh, forgive us of any sin that we have in our hearts still residing there as we, uh, that would inhibit us from hearing your word. Give us ears to hear, as Jesus says right here in this very text. And give me, Lord, a mouth to speak. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Matthew 11 Beginning in verse 7. Now, as with Luke's version, this passage, this, this scripture, whole scripture really beginning in Matthew 11 verse 1, is, is one whole unit all the way down to verse 19. The unit, as I mentioned last week, is marked by three questions. Number one, there's John's question about Jesus. That's found in verse 3 of Matthew's account. Then number two, there's Jesus' question to the crowds about John. Who do, you, who do you think this was? Who, who did you go out to see? And that's in verse 7, and then he repeats it in verse 8 and 9. And then finally, the last one is Jesus' question to the Jewish people about themselves. To what shall I compare this generation? And as I've already reminded us, last week we studied how John's question was born out of his, his misplaced expectations. Misplaced expectations breed disappointment and discontentment with the way God works... They can lead to despair and doubt within the hearts of God's people. And the only way they're defeated is through a deeper dependence upon the surety of God's word. And so last week's passage ends with Jesus reorienting John's thinking through the scriptures. He uses the prophet Isaiah particularly to reorient John's thinking and enable him to see the true scope of the messianic mission. Now today's text, as I've already said, picks up right where last week's story left off. Verse 7, as they, John's disciples, went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. So he begins to speak to the crowds because now he's going to correct some of their misplaced expectations. And in doing so, Jesus wants them to see this hinge moment that's happening. Namely, the inbreaking of the kingdom. The passing away of the old and the arrival of the new. He is going to do this first by helping them see the, the true nature of John's ministry. And then by helping them see um, the true greatness of the kingdom. And finally he's going to finish it off by rebuking them for their childish 
unwillingness to see this hinge moment in history. Unwillingness to, to acknowledge that it's happening. So in today's text, there's three po- in today's sermon, there's three points for you. And I, and I, go, I think I'm going to go ahead and give you all three to start off with so you already have them. First, there's a prophetic preparation. Jesus wants us to see the prophetic preparation that had been made for the kingdom. Jesus wants us to see the privileged position of those who are in the kingdom. And finally, Jesus wants us to see the persistent purility of those who are outside the kingdom. And if you want to know what purility means, you're going to have to wait. All right? We'll come back to that in a little bit. But first of all, this prophetic preparation that had been made for the kingdom. So he asks in verse 7, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out to see? Who do you think John was? Now, honestly, I think Jesus is actually defending John's ministry here. Perhaps after John's incarceration, which he had been in in prison now for at least a year and a half, perhaps after John's incarceration, people had begun to question who he was and even question his legitimacy. Well, if he were really a prophet, this wouldn't happen. Perhaps others were greatly disillusioned after his imprisonment, some of his followers. Or perhaps many just thought that John was a, was a passing fad. Okay, just a, just a passing, another religious nut out there on the scene. During this time, during this era, there were lots of religious nuts out there in the wilderness. And John was just, he's just another one of those guys. So Jesus asks, verse 7, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now on the banks of the Jordan River, out where John would do his ministry... There were these cattails these other re- and these other reeds, and they were, they were everywhere. So, so perhaps Jesus is asking something along the lines of, did you just go out to see the scenery? Is that why you went out there? But I think what Jesus is doing more than that is that he is giving them an object lesson, which Jesus does all the time, and he's, he, he helps us to see things by giving us object lessons sometimes. He's giving them an object lesson and asking them, do you really think that John was some sort of weakling of a man? This phrase, a reed shaken by the wind, is used in other Greek literature to refer to someone who is flimsy or fickle. So, so someone, someone who is swayed by popular opinion or by circumstances. Perhaps they had heard John boldly proclaim that Jesus is Israel's Messiah a year and a half ago, only now to overhear John's disciples asking Jesus if he was the one. And if not, who should they be looking for? So maybe now they're wondering, maybe this John is just a, a flip-flopper, a, a weakling. And so Jesus is saying, do you really think that John, the man who boldly proclaimed the gospel in the wilderness, who shouted down Pharisees, who told Roman soldiers to stop sinning and repent, who had the audacity to confront Herod's sin to his face, do you think this man is a fickle, hypocritical, wishy-washy man? Is that what you saw when he preached? No, John was no mere reed shaken by the wind, and they knew it. He was something much, much more. So Jesus asked again in verse 8, What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Now, perhaps Jesus is, is playing on a little bit of irony here, because where is John at this point? He's actually in Herod's palace, but he's not... Enjoying his stay in Herod's palace, he's in Herod's dungeon. But the people knew that John wasn't one of those people in king's houses. He wasn't one of those rich people. He wasn't a powerful person. He wasn't a fancy person. Now, it's very interesting. This phrase in the Greek, 
dressed in soft clothing, was sometimes used in other Greek literature to refer to effeminate men. Okay? So is that what you think of John? Is that who you think he is? He's no mamby-pamby mama's boy. Do you really think that's who John is? He was a man's man. I mean, for goodness sakes, he ate bugs. All right? That's John. And the crowds knew this. And they knew he was something much, much more. So Jesus asks a third time. Verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So what Jesus then does is he's going to make the case from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that John was more than a prophet. He was actually the prophet who had been predicted who would come before the Messiah would come. Verse 10 of this chapter today in chapter 11 of Matthew says this. This is he of whom it is written. Now he's quoting Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. By quoting this Old Testament text, Jesus is leaving no doubt in the, in the minds of his hearers who John is and also who he is. By quoting Malachi 3.1, he's, he's laying it all out on the line here. You need to know who John was and you need to know who I am. So I want us to actually go look at the Malachi passage real quick here and, and see a little bit more of the context here. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come, listen to this, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. Do you see who this messenger, John the Baptist, is preparing the way for? He is preparing the way for the Lord, for Yahweh. Jesus is saying that John is the messenger Malachi spoke of. And Jesus is saying that he himself is the one he was preparing the way for. Therefore, he himself is the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh. He is God. He is also, according to Malachi, the messenger of the covenant. But it was a new covenant. A covenant that was to be sealed with his own blood, Jesus' blood. And that was now breaking in. This new covenant era was breaking in. It was, again, this hinge moment in history. So Jesus says John was therefore more than merely a prophet. He was the prophet. He is the same one Malachi would speak up later, one chapter later, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And these are the very last words of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So those are the last words of the Old Testament. The Old Covenant revelation ends with the promise that Elijah would come. And that would signal the beginning of something brand new. And Jesus is telling everyone who is willing to hear that that day has come. And that's why in verse 14 of today's text, Jesus says... And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. If you're willing to accept it. Meaning that there is a certain degree of mystery to it. John's role as Elijah is to a degree mysterious, enigmatic. It's a little bit mysterious here as we think about how John really was Elijah. Because if you go to John chapter 1, we're talking about the gospel of John now, written by the apostle John. 
John chapter 1, verse 19, we read this. And, and now, before I read it, some people will actually take this text and then what Jesus says in this passage today to try to prove that there's, there's um, contradictions in the Bible. John chapter 1, verse 19. And, and this is, this is the, when they had sent, the Pharisees had sent people to John to ask if he was the Messiah. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So John says in this text that he's not Elijah, but Jesus says in the passage we're looking at today that he is Elijah. So what gives? Well, first of all, John is not physically Elijah. But John had come in the spirit of Elijah. Not all Old Testament, this should be helpful, helpful to us, not all Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in a wooden literal sense. You see the angel's words to Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's father, Mr. the Baptist. We read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So Elijah had come, but not in the way the people had expected it. They were looking through the wrong lens. Part of the reason people missed the full meaning of the prophecies in Jesus' day, and I believe part of the reason people miss them in our day too, is that people are looking for the wrong type of fulfillment. A lot of times people then and people now have misplaced expectations born out of improper interpretations of the prophets. And that is why so many missed John and why so many missed Jesus, for they both had come, but not according to everyone's misplaced expectations. John was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, but only to the eyes of those who could see it and to the ears of those who could hear it. That's why Jesus says in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The problem was people's dull hearing had kept them from seeing what God had done. And so later in Matthew, we read of a conversation between Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. We read this. The disciples asked him, they're speaking to Jesus. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he'll restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus wants them and he wants us to see the prophetic preparation that had been made for the kingdom. But more than that, Jesus wants us to see the privileged position of those who are in the kingdom. As great... As John and John's mission was, it was pointing to something much greater. It was the heralding of the fact that the king was coming and that his kingdom was coming with him. Matthew 3, verse 1. This is John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John stood in a unique place in history. He was announcing the hinge moment. A new era, the, new, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And for this reason, because of his exalted place as the forerunner and the herald of the coming king, he was great. And so what Jesus says about him doesn't surprise us in verse 11. 
Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That doesn't surprise us. None of us are surprised by that comment. What surprises us is the next comment. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, first I think we need a refresher on what the kingdom is. I gave us a definition earlier in this series, if you'll remember way back. And yes, we began this series three years ago. Um, But way back at some point during that three-year process, I gave this definition. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And that's not my definition. I've borrowed that from uh, Dr. Graham Goldsworthy. I believe that this concept runs from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22, verse 21. The pattern of the kingdom is established in the garden, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But it is lost in the fall. Then the restored kingdom is promised. It begins to be promised in, in, in Genesis 3, verse 15. But it's more fully promised to Abraham, Genesis 17 in particular. And so the restored kingdom is promised. And then the perfect kingdom is foreshadowed because we have Israel come on the scene. And we have the physical fulfillment of what was given to Abraham. In Leviticus 26, 12 we read, And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. But that kingdom was foreshadowing a a truer, more perfect kingdom that was yet to come at the hands of Jesus. When Jesus is here, that hinge moment. And then as Jesus returns, what we're looking forward to is the final kingdom being consummated. In the person and work of Jesus, the kingdom is now at hand. My friends, Jesus wasn't just now on the scene to usher in the kingdom. And I want to make this point as clear as I can. Jesus was now on the scene as the fulfillment of the kingdom. He himself, his person and work is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to represent his people as the people of God. I'm going to stand in your place as the people of God. So he he stands in our place as the new Adam and also as the new Israel. As the beginning of Matthew makes very clear. And then Jesus not only represents the people of God, he himself is the place where God and man meet. He is the people of God. He is the place of God. And so we read him in John. In John, he just tears down all the old. He's sitting there tearing down that old lens when he says, hey, listen, guess what? I'm the new temple. And guess what? I'm the tabernacle. And not only that, as he tells to the Samaritan woman at the well, I'm also the mount where people meet God. So now you can worship in spirit and in truth. He's dismantling all of it. Because he's here. Not because it was wrong, but because it was pointing to something perfect. Himself. And so Jesus is the people of God. He represents the people of God. He is is the place where God and man meet. And Jesus not only is that, he is God's rule. For he himself is the righteous king, now ruling in the hearts of his people, but still seated at the right hand of God, coming back to gather all his people to himself and to put every enemy under his foot. He is the people of God. He is the place of God. He is the rule of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom. For he himself is the righteous king come to rule his people. Jesus is the hinge of history. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. Boom, it's fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom has been inaugurated through the person and work of Christ Jesus our Lord. And to enter the kingdom is to repent and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel message of Jesus. So those who have repented and believed in the good news of Jesus Christ have entered the kingdom. But, but how 
The question now is, how is the least or the smallest in the kingdom greater than John? Well, I think that there's several things we could talk about here. And this could actually take quite a while itself. But I'm just going to give us three things this morning. First, what was John's role? John's role was to announce, herald, preach Jesus. To talk about Jesus coming. But now on this side of the cross, in the new covenant reality, the church points to Jesus in an even greater way than John ever could have. Our role is greater than John's. Doesn't mean we need to go eat bugs, but it means we proclaim Jesus in a more full understanding than John even had. What a great privileged position we are in to proclaim Jesus on this side of the cross. That makes us greater than John. Because we're heralds as well. We should be heralds. Heralds of Jesus telling everybody who he is. John's ministry was the last of an era of shadows. We read earlier 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 12. And I don't think we need to read it again. But we see in that text seeing how the the prophets, they prophesied and they searched and they inquired carefully trying to to discern when the Spirit of Christ in them was was predicting all these things were going to happen. And they were, as we read earlier, they were serving us. And John the Baptist is the last of that line And I think part of the reason he had a hard time seeing Jesus when he sends that question and he asks that question because he's still in this line. He's still with these guys trying to inquire. I'm preaching winnowing fork. I'm preaching axe. I'm preaching fire. And you're out there just healing people and eating with tax collectors and sinners. I don't get it. So we on this side have a fuller picture of Jesus, a fuller understanding of his coming, a fuller experience of his presence in a foretaste of the final kingdom. Secondly, and kind of related to the first, is that John was on the old covenant side of history, and now in Christ the new covenant is dawning. So from a covenantal perspective, the least in the kingdom is greater, for the new covenant is greater than the old. The scriptures teach in Hebrews 8 verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And so John was a prophet of the old covenant. And now in Christ we are ministers of the new covenant. As 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 teaches us. We are ministers of the new covenant. We therefore are in a better position than John. The hinge moment has occurred. The old has passed away. Behold the new has come. And thirdly. Because of the new covenant reality that is dawning in Christ Jesus, those who will be in this inaugurated kingdom of God will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Now I believe, and this is a a point of debate, and I, I gladly debate on this, I believe that Old Testament saints were by nature children of wrath just like anyone in the New Testament era. And therefore, they had to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had to do a work in them. And so the Holy Spirit also had to keep them. Or else they would have wandered away from the faith, just like any of us would do without the Holy Spirit's help. And so in that sense, certainly there was a Holy Spirit ministry among the people of God in the Old Covenant. But the New Covenant, I believe there is a greater presence of the Spirit in that now not only is the Spirit dwelling with His people, which is the terminology used in the Old Testament, but now He is dwelling in His people. 
That's the greatness of the kingdom. God sealing his people, ruling his people, present with his people through the indwelling spirit in his people. That's a greater thing than I think that John could have imagined. We read in John chapter 14, verse 16, this is Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now listen to this. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I think that's the contrast right there that we're seeing. The Holy Spirit has been dwelling with his people and working with God's people in the old covenant era. But now in the new covenant, what we see is now him dwelling in his people. And so the the presence of the Spirit in the new covenant era is greater than the old covenant era. So his people worship now in spirit and in truth because the presence of the Spirit is in them. In the old covenant worship, it was localized in the place where the Spirit dwelt. God's covenant presence with Israel was in the tabernacle, and then it was in the temple. But now worship is localized in the hearts of his people. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So now, through the Holy Spirit, God's covenant presence is in the heart of each true kingdom citizen and in the collective community of the kingdom citizens, which is the church. Therefore, we both individually and corporately are called the temple of God. And therefore, we are in a greater position than John was. Even though we still await the final consummation of the kingdom. Now I want you to to think about those things, believer. If you're a believer here this morning, think about these things. A final sacrifice has been made for your sins. Access to the Holy of Holies has been made available through Jesus, your high priest, your final and true high priest. And that high priest continually intercedes before the Father for you. The spirit of of the living God is living in you. Oh, friends, John could only dream of that. John could only dream of that kind of a day where a, a, a curtain torn in two. And so here we are on this side and it should make us better worshipers. It should make us passionate worshipers and, and thankful to God for where he has chosen to put us for he determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling. Now the next thing Jesus says is a bit perplexing in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Honestly, this is one of those texts that leaves you scratching your head. When you're in seminary, this is one of those texts that your seminary professor will give you just to try to stump you, try to get you messed up, you know, especially if you go look at the Greek and see what it says and all of that. Basically, this is a very hard sentence to translate. It could either be translated one of two ways. Either it means what the way the ESV has translated, and that is the kingdom of heaven is the recipient of violence, and that violent men are trying to take it by force. But also, it could mean that the kingdom of heaven is actually moving forward with violence, and actually moving forward with great force. And so those who would interpret it that way would say, the healings and the exorcisms and the raising of the, of the widow's son, these are, these are things where God is coming in with force upon the kingdom of darkness. And it could be translated that way. But I think the ESV has it right. And Jesus is pointing out the fact that despite what the people were expecting, the kingdom of God would actually suffer great opposition. And it would even appear to be losing. From the day of John the Baptist until now, meaning the moment that John arrived on the scene, 
God's kingdom message had received opposition. Including the fact that John himself was now sitting in a jail cell. That's why I choose to interpret it this way because of the fact of what the context. John's in a jail cell. People are wondering, if John's really a prophet, how come he's in jail? Well, that's because the kingdom of God is being fought against violently by violent men. And I think John, as we saw last week, was having a hard time getting his mind around this truth as well. He, he was expecting the kingdom of God to come in with power and, and to come in with, with political power. He wasn't expecting it to receive the opposition and the violence that it was suffering. How could the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, suffer violence? Wasn't the Messiah coming to overthrow these evil empires and establish a political throne on earth? Well, yes, but not yet. First, the kingdom had to be opposed. It would be opposed by Herod's father, Herod the Great, when he tried to kill the infant Messiah in Bethlehem. It was opposed by the Pharisees, and by the Sadducees, and by the Herodians, and by the Romans, and by Pilate. And indeed, violent men would take it by force. They would take the king himself and bind him and spit on him and strike him and scourge him and mock him and lay a wooden cross upon him. And then they would mercilessly and and unjustly crucify him. And though he rose again and reigns on high, he has commissioned his people to take the gospel into a world that still tries to do violence against it. And so we, his people, must be willing to lose our family, lose our money, lose our homes, and even our lives for the sake of the kingdom. But no one yet understood this as Jesus is speaking. In order to usher in the greater new covenant reality of the kingdom, in order for that to happen, violent men were going to have to take the king by force. The perfect lamb had to be sacrificed for the sins of his people. And this is what the whole Old Testament had been teaching if they only had ears to hear it. Verse 13, for all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. You see, all the Old Testament summarized by the prophets and the law pointed to Jesus. And this foreshadowing work culminated with John. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, long ago and at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is the hinge moment in history. Nothing was the same after Jesus. John was the last stage of the old era before the inauguration of the kingdom. The problem is few were willing to accept it. And so Jesus has one more question. And so in today's text, he wants us to see finally the persistent puerility of those who are outside the kingdom. All right, we're in a a small group here. What's, What's puerility, anybody? It simply means childishness. I was looking for a word that started with P, all right? And I found the perfect one because that's what I was looking for, childishness. Purility means childishness. And that, that's what Jesus compares the people to in this last portion here. He compares them to, to children. Let's go down to verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. It was not John who was vacillating like a reed shaken in the wind. It was the people. They were like children playing two games, but not satisfied with either. They're pretending it's wedding day, but they're refusing to dance. Or they're pretending it's funeral day, but they're refusing to mourn. The funeral game with its dirge and mourning represents the ministry of John with all its harsh and frightful words. And then, as I said last week, 
the wedding game with the flute and the dancing represents the ministry of Jesus with its tender mercies and its miracles. Yet the people, by and large, refused to see who John was and refused to see who Jesus was. They refused to hear John's message, and therefore they refused to submit to the king. So Jesus sums up the people's attitude in verses 18 and 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Meaning that God's design, God's purposes, God's wisdom will be justified, will be vindicated by the deeds both of John and Jesus. So let me conclude. The world will look at the wisdom of God and will see foolishness. The world looks at John rotting in a prison cell as a failure. The world looks at a king without a political kingdom as a fraud. The world looks at a man who claims to be God as a lunatic and laughingly rejects his message. But to the one who has ears to hear, to the one who is willing to accept it, his message is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So believers this morning... Know that the kingdom will continue to be established in the hearts of God's people. And one day the king will return. He'll put all of our enemies and his enemies under his foot. And he'll wipe away all of our tears and we will reign with him forever. But until then, this violent work of the world will continue to lash out against the king and lash out against his kingdom and lash out against his kingdom citizens. But unbeliever this morning, I want you to stop being wise in your own eyes. Stop refusing to listen. My prayer for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes and your ears to hear that Jesus is indeed the King. The King of kings, the King of heaven, the King of the universe. And one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I pray that today, before that day when it's too late... I pray that today will be the day you confess Jesus as Lord. I pray that today will be a hinge moment in your own personal story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even though we have a fuller light, fuller revelation than John had, we still come at the word with misplaced expectations. We still come at our Christian walk with misplaced expectations. We don't understand why the wicked prosper. We don't understand why the righteous are often dealt with violently. But we know your word is true. And we know that Jesus is coming back. And that one day, every tear that we have that has been brought on by the violence that we've suffered, he'll wipe away. And one day he will do away with the sin that continues to plague us day in, day out. And we'll receive new bodies, sinless bodies, and we'll reign with you forever. So Lord, we look forward to that day. But until then, help us to be heralds of the gospel. We have a fuller message than John had. We are in a greater position. And that applies to even the least of these in this room here. To the child who's a new believer, 
to the octogenarian that's been a believer for 60 years. To the least, the least to the greatest, the youngest to the oldest. What a message we have. Father, I pray that you stir us up to be people who herald the truth that the king has come and the king is coming back. We pray all this in the precious name of our king, Jesus. Amen.